0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Bridge Ed. My name is Jonathan Van Meren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. The guest we have today is someone we've had on this show before. It is Lord Conrad Black of Cross Harbor. Last time he came on, he was talking a bit about his book on the history of Canada and and the history of Canada as he sees it. But this time we had a conversation about something that I'd wanted to discuss with him for some time. And that's his view of the American prison system. And the reason I've always found... This uh, a very interesting topic, and, and the debate surrounding uh, tough-on-crime legislation, how we should appropriately deal with criminals, uh, the, the, the truths and lies surrounding the war on drugs. I've actually had uh, Peter Hitchens on the show to talk about his book, The War We Never Fought, on the War on Drugs. He would obviously disagree quite strongly with Conrad Black on that topic. But the reason I find it so interesting is because I study the history of social reform, and one of the things that always crops up when you look at the history of social reform is that uh, right up there with, you know, the abolition of the slave trade, the abolishing of child labor practices and all these other, uh, you know, very noble causes, prison reform was actually a, a huge focus among a lot of the major social reformers because they recognized that, you know, people could, if the justice system was not operating correctly, send innocent people to prison. Uh, Those innocent people could be hugely degraded by their experience in prison, and their time in prison could uh, relegate them to second-class citizen status upon exiting. And this is an interesting topic because, uh, by and large, we sort of assume uh, that this doesn 't take place anymore, and I have to admit myself when when you hear a lot of the rhetoric from the left wing crowd about people being innocent they 're often defending pretty reprehensible people they have a bad habit of of you know excusing cop shooters and and you know bill ayers the uh, the the wh- whether underground domestic terrorist who blew up recruiting offices is seen as as something of a hero, even though, obviously, the actions he was engaged in were not of the non-violent sort, they were of a very violent sort. So uh, I find that the conservative side seems to react strongly to uh, the left and their soft-on-crime approach, and then go in the other direction and and be extremely uh, tough on crime. But Conrad Black makes some very important distinctions regarding a nonviolent crime and violent crime. And I've always found his views very interesting because he spent time in a federal penitentiary in Florida on charges that had almost been completely vacated uh, by the upper courts. And the Supreme Court of the United States had actually thrown out most of the charges against him. He details his experience and a lot of the things that he went through in his book, A Matter of Principle, which I would recommend to anybody. It's a really fascinating read for for a number of reasons. Just uh, the various interactions with figures on the world stage during his time in prison uh, makes for great reading. So uh, Conrad Black agreed to come on our show again and this time talk about uh, the state of the American legal system as well as incarceration rates and and just to sort of flesh through a lot of the the complicated issues surrounding uh, these things. So I'm really pleased that he agreed to come on our show a second time, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation as much as I did. What we want to discuss today is the mass incarceration levels in the United States as well as the the tough-on-crime legislation favored by not only conservatives but a certain stripe of politician everywhere. And since spending time in a U.S. federal prison, you've become a very vocal critic of mass incarceration in the United States. I was fairly critical of it before, but
1: particularly after I'd experienced it.
0: Yeah, what was it about your experience that you found most illustrative of wider problems with the way the U.S. legal system actually functions? Well, I, I you know, like many other people that
1: I've met there, I've you know, more committed crimes than you did. I mean, it, my greatest grievance is not with the prison system, although I, I, and, and not my personal treatment of it, but uh, the way the system operates, and then you prosecutors have a conviction rate of 99.5%, 97% without a trial. And the reason for that is that the the uh, variance between pleading guilty and the sentence you get if you do that, and not pleading guilty and being convicted, which almost always happens, is so great that people are intimidated. And the reason that people are practically always convicted is because The plea bargain system has been so distorted and corrupted that what happens in practice is that the prosecutors target somebody, they go around to that person's eight closest acquaintances in the activity objected to, and say, uh, we want whatever evidence you can recall that will prove that Mr. X committed a crime. And when the eight people say I don't believe that he did I have no such evidence I know him he's an honest man he wouldn't do that they say well that's all very nice but if you don't jog your memory uh, then clearly a conspiracy to obstruct obstruct justice but the golden of evidence is in progress and you will be complicit and it will be charged whereupon almost invariably people uh, have had hitherto unrecollected um, remembrances of the uh, guilty conduct of the targeted individual and they, as in a catechism class, are rehearsed in however many sessions with the prosecutors it takes to get satisfactory evidence that they are given in the museum, including against accusations of perjury, and file in like a row of trained seals and sink whoever the target is. And if, you, if that's how the system operates, you're going to convict everybody you accuse. And that's effectively what happens. And so the result is that the United States has, as you know, from 6 to 12 times the number of incarcerated people per capita of the uh, of its peer group of prosperous democratic countries, which is generally reckoned to be, a less, I mean large prosperous democracies, which is generally reckoned to be, Australia, Canada, France, Germany,
0: Japan, and the United Kingdom. What provides the, the incentive for such a high level of prosecution? Because one would think that from any perspective, uh, discovering someone's innocence or discovering that the, the so-called crime they've committed is, is far less serious than originally thought would be a positive outcome for civil society at large. Why are people so incentivized to ensure these these skyrocketing conviction levels? Well, in fairness, I don't. I don't think that's how it's presented to
1: the American public <clears throat> in the first place. You know, we're all unlicensed psychiatrists, but I have no standing to include motives to people, in particular, in your question, of, to the motives of a majority of people in a huge country, a complicated society of over three hundred million people. But the mm-hmm. the um, the prevailing political wind has been for a long time. Uh, crack down on the criminals and treat them harshly and reduce their number. And that has, I, I believe that that really took hold in the 60s with the fears generated on the one hand by the radical African Americans, uh, including riots at Attica and San Quentin and, and certain. Much publicized groups that frighten society to a degree, like the black panthers, and uh, and and secondly, the feminist movement that, uh, depending on which spokesperson you listen to, created the impression that there were an inordinate number of potential rapists in the male population, and um, and and so it, it, politically, it was a free lunch. Uh, and what you said in your introduction was absolutely correct. They, they Robert Kennedy and uh, Nelson Rockefeller were just as hardline in, in things like three strikes and you're out, of the mandatory minimums, and that sort of thing as uh, Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan, and, and it was a, a uniform consensus. Uh, and there was no constituency for the other side. The old legal reform movement, the the penal reform movement that exists in all these civilized countries, and certainly exists in Canada, and the John Howard Society and so forth, uh, was squashed by this mighty juggernaut of of everyone from left to right saying, uh, we're we're going to to stop mollycoddling criminals. And it it has taken a very long time for uh, the incidences of abuse of prosecutorial office to to aggregate themselves up to the point where the media and therefore the public are starting to become seriously concerned about them and this is happening at the same time that inefficient government management is creating serious concerns about the cost of the prison system and uh... Much of the agitation, even by Newt Gingrich and so on, for, for a less imprisonment-based system, it, it, it's commendable, and indeed it's correct as far as it goes, but the motive is much more one of cost efficiency than, than of uh, these prosecutors are out of control and they, and they think they can take down whoever they want for as long as they want. And I, I thought in the, in the year when... Um, My friend Scooter Libby, the former chief of staff to the vice president of the U.S., Mr. Cheney, was uh, convicted on evidence that the chief cooperating witness uh, has now stated was, was absolutely false. Uh, And and she's made allegations which, if true, would cause the prosecutor in the case. It was the same prosecutor I had, Patrick Fitzgerald, to be disbarred in this country here, Great Britain. Uh, And and in the same year as the Libby case, Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska, seven term senator, very prominent member of the U.S. Senate, was uh, convicted. on evidence that was almost immediately proved to be false. And uh, and, and there was no sanction on, on the prosecutors there. Now, one of them tragically committed suicide. Uh, no, one, no one would be asking for that. But but there was no other sanction on the prosecutors other than censorious remarks that were published. Both prosecutors can just fabricate evidence, withhold evidence, and do what they want to get a conviction, and nothing happens to... to uh, disincentivize them from abusing the system. There's going to be a terrible amount of abuse. And I, I, I just i to finish this monologue, which I apologize for the length of, but it's a complicated subject. Mm-hmm. The, um, the Johnson case, I mean, was, of course, one of the most common names in the U.S., so in itself it doesn't mean much, but the, the actual case I'm referring to uh, was a, a southern states, a Mississippi case, I think, where um, a, a Mr. Johnson was uh, convicted of first-degree murder, and he was on death row for 14 years, but he kept using the legal aid system to appeal this conviction and prolong the, uh, the period between sentencing and, and carrying out the sentence, and, which, which was the death penalty. And he... Um, It finally came to light that throughout this 14-year period, the prosecution was perfectly aware of DNA evidence that exonerated him, and he was exonerated. And he sued for wrongful prosecution and wrongful uh, imprisonment, and he won, and, and the state appealed, and Johnson won the appeal, and the award was $1 million for every year that he was on death row, $14 million, and went to the Supreme Court, thrown at five to four by the great conservative majority in that court, and, and, and their decision was that what was done was undoubtedly shameful, but that the prosecutors were acting in their functions, and any, um, any sanction on them would have to be taken by the local bar, now, I don't know, for all I know, the bar of Mississippi may have done something. I, I wouldn't know that. But, but, the I mean, I guess, obviously, I suppose I should find out, but I think that's beside the point. The real mm-hmm. issue here is that if, if prosecutors can deliberately attempt for 14 years to send a man they know to be innocent to his death, then whether they're disbarred or, or not is, is really beside the point. It, 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 is a, it is a very unbalanced system.
0: And so you mentioned the, the recourse that, that was sought by Johnson. Uh, people like you actually have the means to seek recourse for false prosecution. From what I understand, uh, from what you've been saying, most people don't have that recourse, don't have the financial means available most to them. Most people don't
1: have the means to fight them at all. Uh American lawyers are, for the most part, extremely avaricious. It, it, it's, it's, um, and uh, this is not something that's confined to the United States. I have to say that <clears throat> I think in, in to varying degrees in all of our Western societies, the legal profession is conducting a cartel and it is in some respects an abusive cartel. Now it's certainly a learned profession and there are many extremely capable lawyers but there, there is a, a fundamental ability to abuse the system by a very powerful and and coherent group when lawyers make the laws and regulations and legislate them and judge them and argue them and and they have, Every stage of the operation, and they swaddle it all in this uh, sanctimonious uh, claptrap about the rule of law being all that separates us from the jungle and lower orders of animals and so forth. And I mean, there's some truth to that, of course. We have to have a society of laws, but and the rule of law, but uh, they're using it as a as a cover for endless production of more and more laws and regulations requiring the endless uh, graduation and accreditation of more and more lawyers between them all, taking up a larger and larger share of uh, public activity and, and gross domestic product. And, the legal profession consumes all, about 10 percent of the GDP of the United States. A larger percent than is consumed by healthcare, and and people can't afford it. They are very expensive. I I, mean, I, I always say this because it's a matter of public record. My legal bills were over 30 million dollars. Some of them were in Canada. Two countries together. But, but and I and I had some indemnities. I had to sue to enforce them, so I recovered about half of that. But. Obviously, that is not an amount of money that most people can afford to pay.
0: Right. And you've you've written extensively on your on your time in prison in your memoir. And one of the things I was quite interested by is is when you discussed the uh, the quote, quality of the inmates that you met. How you were shocked by how some of them were, as you put the as you put it, objectively dodgy people. Many of them. Uh, were, were very recoverable and, and should not have been given the sentences that they did. Uh, what are a few, a few examples of people you, you met that were incarcerated for very long amounts of time for crimes that you once compared to, you know, it's the equivalent of chopping someone's hand off or stealing a loaf of bread, I believe you said? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, one of my students got a 20-year sentence for driving a, a, a truck full of marijuana. Now, he knew that, that it was uh, an illegal substance. He himself was not a user and not a dealer. He said he was merely a driver. And, and uh, I mean, leaving aside the fact that marijuana has been legalized in two states and because our governments can't finance themselves properly, when they see the money in it, they're going to legalize it everywhere just, just as... Because we had the uh, evolution of the gambling issue from how we could not possibly allow the innocent working man to be deprived of his income casino to the bank. In fact, we're soon going to have them virtually on every block because the government needs the money. But they and they're afraid to raise taxes, good reason. But the leaving aside whether I think marijuana should be an illegal substance or not, which I, I do not. But Fine, that was the law, the man broke the law. But twenty years for driving a truck with marijuana, I mean that is as I, to use the example you raised I mean of course it's not quite the same as chopping someone's hand off, but it's a very severe sentence. It was nonsense. Anyway, he wasn't a bad man. I you know, I I got to know my students quite well and they tended to tell me a lot about their lives and I like, this was not a man who belonged in prison at all. He's no danger to anyone and that when released he would you know, he would get uh, uncontroversial work and be a productive member of society, and, it's, and, in, and that has—I'm uh, happy to say—that has in fact happened. I keep in touch with some of these people, and, and that's what he's doing. Like he's, he has a he's a modest job as a salesperson in a, in a sporting
0: goods store in Florida, and he's—you know—he's he's fine. Yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting evidence that's come out uh stating that the stigma of a criminal record uh often for very small infractions uh when they exit prison they often feel like they have uh no choice but to go back to crime due to the lack of employment opportunities for them. Is that a question? Well, uh, I was wondering if if that had been your your experience uh, talking to the people that that you served with. Uh it, it it's a problem. Uh I mean
1: in my situation is a bit different, so I, I can't say it's been a problem for me. But the um, but yes, it is a problem, and, and, and but it's all it's really a part of a larger problem. And that is, that the um, a great many of these people uh, got into the activities that led uh, to being prosecuted and convicted, uh, if. And, and we're speaking of the ones who actually did break the law, uh-huh. and my reckoning is about 20% of incarcerated people in the U.S. are innocent. But the, uh and almost all the others are over-sentenced. But the, uh, I'm speaking of the nonviolent ones now. The violent ones, that's another issue, and I'd, I had almost no experience with those people. They weren't in the kind of low security place where I was. But the, um, uh, it's not just the stigma. It's that while you're there, they don't really teach you anything that enables you to earn a, a, a living, a livable income in an honest way, let's just say an illegal way. Uh, I remember once um, one of the people I knew there said, are you going to the visitor's center today? And I said, well, I am, in fact, and, and, and indeed I went most days because I had a lot of visitors. But they... Uh, uh, I mean, most of the you can only receive them uh, for four days a week, and I, so I often, I, you know, I, I used most, almost all those days, but the the, um, the
0: man asked
1: me this, he said, well, it's my son's coming to visit me, he wants to become a drug dealer, which I did, which is why I'm here, and I'm trying to dissuade him of that, could, could I bring him over to talk to you, and just you know, try and Tell them it it's not a great idea. Uh-huh. So I did, and I, I said, and the argument I thought of was I said, look, if you're attracted to that sort of milieu, you, know, you know, that kind of demi-moment of those people, and some, some people are, a lot of lawyers are, by the way, a lot of police are, they find a kind of fascinating little society in a way. I said, why don't you become a bail bondsman? You're taking money out of the same pool, you're seeing all these people you make quite a secure, good income, but it's completely legal, and the police won't bother you, and the, the prosecutors won't bother you. Uh, and in the end, that's what this guy did. He became the bail bondsman, which is a terrible occupation, I think, But if you like that kind of uh, you know, underclass, under society, and, and want to have some association with it, you, you, that's a way of doing it without doing anything illegal. Uh, but it. it, it if if we would, you see, the problem is in the U.S. A good part of the um, prison industry is in private hands. Mm-hmm. Companies like Correction Corporation of America and and Hat, and so forth. And even mm-hmm. the state and federal prisons are, like any bureaucracy, sort of a vast organization. And and in the private sector, as in the public sector. Uh, all these organizations like to grow, and and in this case the commodity is prisoners. So they want more prisoners. So they want more people prosecuted, more grounds to prosecute them, in longer sentences. And and when they finally have to release them, they want the maximum possibility that they will be flopped back into the system because they, you know, it's like a man, for argument's sake, building automobiles, making automobiles. You know, he wants to make and sell more automobiles. Well, they want more prisoners, and and the, the system is sort of skewed that way. And they don't really—they pretend they do—but they don't really help people to acquire skills that will enable them when they leave uh, to, to to make uh, an income legally that, that they can live on. And, uh, and 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 that that is. So that, by the way, is one of the great problems of the Harper government's omnibus crime bill. And they were rolling back the rehabilitative and job training aspects of it, and especially in periods of relatively high unemployment, uh, which was the case when I was in prison in the United States. It's come down now. But uh, the um, all the traditional forces that represent... And and act for relatively unskilled labor. Agitate not to get more competition uh, from from people who, for their own purposes, they represent as incorrigible criminals, morally unfit to be employed. So it's it's an economic as well as a uh, how should I put it, an economic problem, a psychological problem, and and a problem aggravated by the appetite of the prison industry not to return these people to society fully
0: able to function, but rather to return them temporarily and snatch them back if they can. Right, and this is very interesting because you mentioned previously how, how politicians present the, the tough-on-crime legislation, and, and we've <laughs> seen that a lot of people uh, don't particularly want to challenge the underlying assumptions of tough-on-crime because they don't want to be seen as being soft on crime. They don't want to be seen as the kinds of people who let rapists back out onto the street near schools and and things like that and they're they're fearful the opposition will paint them that way. So when politicians say that you know severe sentencing and you know three strikes in your out and those types of, of laws are necessary to, to, to deter crime, what what is your response to that?
1: Well, as I've said, I, I first of all I make a distinction between violent crime and non-violent crime, there is absolutely no question that society has to be, to the maximum degree possible, uh, protected from habitually violent people. Right. Uh, And and dealing with those people once they're justly convicted is a very much more complicated problem than the kind of thing I was talking about. Uh, And and I, I, I understand there is a sensitivity amongst politicians about being accused of of allowing those who might rape or kill or or do anything threatening violence uh, to to release them prematurely. But uh, I I think that has to be discussed in a different context. But 20-year sentences for nonviolent people, um, with maybe a few exceptions, (coughs) like a... Horribly grandiose crime, like the Madoff case, for example, Right. Is, is just nonsense. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't achieve any desirable objective for society in general. It merely quets the appetite of, of this uh, voracious prison system to have more people in it. So, uh, so it's a bigger business to run, paying higher salaries to the management and throwing off bigger kickbacks to you know, from the suppliers, and, and uh, you know, if you're buying a million mattresses a year instead of uh, 500,000 mattresses a year, you get more preferments from the people you buy the mattresses from, But uh, you know, and, and don't imagine that the system doesn't work that way in the U.S. I mean, every head of the Bureau of Prisons is fired after a few years for some misfeasance or other, It's it's quite a corrupt organization, and I keep finding, I mean, when I was there, the They're constantly finding things that have been smuggled in. It's impossible for a visitor to smuggle in anything to someone they're visiting. It all comes in through corrupt prison officials who sell it and supplement their incomes with it. But uh, that's that's a slight digression. I I think that there is no great pressure on politicians to say... uh, that nonviolent people have to be sent away for maximum sentence. Unfortunately, we got distracted with this nonsense of the war on drugs. It has been a total failure. The United States, when it actually engages in a real war, a military war, normally does very well, and its military are very successful, well-trained, and very well Right. But these phony wars, the war on crime, the war on poverty, these these, um, seizures arrogations to themselves by politicians of the the, uh, word war with all that implies in terms of the national unity behind the cause seeking an absolute victory uh, for things that are not susceptible to that sort of treatment uh, is nonsense. I mean, there was a total war against Japan after they attacked Pearl Harbor. and and it was a just war, and the Japanese had no business attacking Pearl Harbor and killing thousands of Americans. But but that isn't like the war on drugs. The fact is, the whole concept is nonsense, and they've stoked up civil wars in parts of Latin America. And as with Prohibition in the 20s, They've handed over this large industry to extremely disreputable elements, but if if you if you legalized soft drugs and legalized hard drugs with a requirement for addicts to submit to treatment, and if they declined to do it, took them into custody and administered treatment to them humanely. You, you would you would take that business out of the hands of criminal elements, and and you would add greatly to the revenues of the governments, and 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 you would radically reduce the cost of conducting this insane war. If in any case, has been lost. I mean, we now have drug busts in Mexico where. Uh, both sides have helicopter gunships, and, and uh, eventually the target people escape in submarines and things like this. I mean, it's, it's like a real war, and it, it, it's all nonsense. But it just goes on because the media hasn't got around to informing the public. But the whole thing is a scam anyway. Uh, but it is. So if, if you just if you just took out the soft drug. And nonviolent element of those convicted in, in the so called drug war, you'd, you'd move out, I would think, probably a third of the incarcerated people in the U.S. If you train them to do something before you release them, uh, then, then I accept it would increase pressure on, uh, on on some categories of job holders in that country, but it would add very substantially to the to the hireable uh, and functioning economically useful part of the population and, and would be a
0: good thing in all respects. But uh, as you point out, like a lot of these issues are, are quite complex and complex issues yeah, don't... They are, and I don't
1: mean to speak of them simplistically.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: but the, the, what i said is not so complicated. Once you get into... Once you get into questions of violence related to drugs and that sort of thing, it gets very complicated, and you have to be extremely careful, and there are no easy answers to it. But the key but is, is, you know, that is not the number of violent people in American prisons. It, it's higher than other countries, but it's nothing like the imbalance of, of the total in confined population. Uh, if, 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 if they've just adopted the rule, already, we're going to work we're going to release all the nonviolent people over a phased program here, depending on the gravity of their offense. But but we're not really changing the regime on, on violent people. Or, you know, threatened by that point and that sort of thing. Um, you, 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 you would address a large part of the problem of the statistical imbalance of incarcerated people per capita in the U.S. comparative to the countries that, the, that it's fair to compare it to. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't compare it to A a failed state like Somalia or something, you've got to compare it to a prosperous democratic country in a large country with a, with a, uh, a varied economy and population, not
0: a petro state like Kuwait or something like that. Uh, one final question then is: so for for our listeners, a lot of people are hearing these issues getting broken down, as you say, in quite a uh, an understandable and and simple fashion. Well, what does this mean uh, in terms of of real policy? What sorts of things, uh, for example, here in Canada, could be implemented to to reach a system that that is more just and, and runs more along the lines of, of what you've been been talking about? Well, I, the rec- the reforms
1: I'd recommend are, uh, I agree with the present government's plan to legalize marijuana. I would legalize all drugs on the basis I said that the, the, um, the people who all those who are have given reason in their past conduct to justify suspicion that they are addicts of hard drugs would have to submit the test to see if they are. And if they are, they have to submit to treatment. And if they don't, they have to be taken into a gentle form of custody. Where they have to undergo the treatment, that that, that I, I would agree with, or at least that's what I would advocate. For the rest, I, I, would, I would let them go, legalize the business, uh, but regulate it. The, the, regulate the sale of marijuana as the sale of the alcoholic beverages, is, and and and, and uh, urge the governments to take the revenue and use the revenue wisely, and, and if possible, use it to lower taxes on modest income, families, and small businesses, but in any case benefit from the revenue. And uh, I would reverse course on what the Harper government did and increase uh, skills training, job training, and and, uh, generally rehabilitative uh, treatment. And uh, I was asked to give... uh, Talks, as a number of my colleagues were, to, to inmates who were about to be released and give them advice. Even though I was, I was asked to do it when my own release wasn't imminent, but I hadn't won my appeal, the Supreme Court at that point. And um, I, I, I did do a bit of research on it. And there are some industries that don't pay much attention to to your uh, legal history. For example, most elements of the oil industry. Uh, by which I mean the extraction of oil. I don't mean executives in the offices of the great oil companies. I mean, in the oil fields or in offshore oil rigs, they don't really care anything about that, and they pay, they pay a, uh, quite an impressive uh, wage. And um, so that's an area to go. You, 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 a lot of, there are various types of work that are, that are less uh, interested in that kind of thing. But I think we have to—we have to be much more demanding, and have much more public expression by serious figures of authority of the old view that when people are convicted of something and uh, and, and are sentenced to some to some, uh, to, to some uh, state of uh, either some some state of penalization anyway, of one kind or another. And have and have and have paid that sentence done done that sentence whatever it is it, it, we then that does you know the old expression it's a sort of trite and, and absurd in a way but of paying one's debt to society at that point the slate is supposed to be wiped clean right it, it isn't supposed to continue for the rest of their lives with no possibility of them ever being looked upon as, as decent functioning respectable members of society. And, and, and that has to end. I mean, if it is not a heinous crime, if it is a, a, an infraction of a sort that doesn't threaten anyone's life or well-being, but is, but is a, a, a violation of the law with intent to break the law uh, a, on a scale that carries a criminal penalty, and the penalty is paid, Paid satisfactorily, and the person is released. Then that person has to be again given the benefit of the doubt of anyone else of being a a reasonable and sociable person, sociable in the sense of, of uh, uh, unthreatening to society. I don't mean in the sense of being particularly gregarious. Mm-hmm. And and um, and we just have to resurrect these ancient concepts. We so went completely off the dock into the deep end in this theory that anyone who Picked off a five cent cigar in his way out of a drugstore or something was was scarred for life as a dangerous felon and and we've just got to stop that and reverse it now that, don't misunderstand me I'm not saying mollycoddle criminals, I'm all for having sensible laws and enforcing them and those who you know, I'm, I'm, for the, I'm for the the punishment of crime and the repentance of wrongdoing, but I, I'm not for the over punishment of minor
0: offenses. Well, Mr. Black, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. My my pleasure. Uh, Nice speaking to you.